Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together. Thank you for these songs that we've sung, these rich truths that we've uh, sung that have come before our hearts and minds. And God, we do give you thanks for your goodness, for your, even when we can't see it, your goodness. And I pray that you would help us even in these moments now to turn to your word and find comfort and find joy and to be encouraged, to be corrected where we need it. And I pray that this would be for your, your glory, Lord, that you would be honored in, our, in any repentance that takes place, that you would be honored in us placing our faith in you uh, afresh, renewing uh, our love for you in this moment and uh, declaring our trust in you and in your uh, sovereign care and control. And I pray that you would help us as a church to together uh, walk in this direction and to encourage one another. And I pray that we would be a church that pleases you and is faithful in every way that we possibly can, that we would be working towards that goal of being faithful to you in all things. We pray that you would use this time now um, to make much of yourself and to encourage your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So imagine with me for a moment that you are flying uh, a bomber. So just work with me uh, on this, but picture this for a moment. Imagine you've been uh, given the assignment of executing a bombing raid Uh, But you have not been given a target. So you fly somehow. Just imagine you know how to fly this thing. You get off the ground, but you have no idea now where you're going, but you're supposed to drop some bombs somewhere. Well, we would probably all agree that's a very bad thing and is a recipe for disaster all over the place, and it's going to be incredibly ineffective. Now imagine it's not just you, but there's 50 other planes up there with you, all tasked with the same thing, except... Imagine this time, you, you, you think you know where the target, but the 49 other uh, pilots, they think the target is something else. And you're supposed to be going uh, supposedly on the same bombing run, and you're all scattered. You, don't, you're, you think your targets are different directions and different places. Well, again, this is a recipe for a, a very large disaster and for things to be incredibly, incredibly ineffective. That's not how uh, any military or... Uh, Navy would ever draw up uh, a bombing run of any kind. So clearly that would end disastrous, damage all, be damaged all over, and be unproductive. Likewise, uh, in the church, if we don't know uh, what our goals are, who we are, where we're supposed to be going, or what it is we are supposed to be doing, if we all have different ideas of what that's supposed to be or what that's supposed to look like, we're in danger of doing damage and certainly being unproductive. If we all think we should be off doing different things and we don't have a common sense of what we should be about, what the work or business or thing is that we should be after. So we're going to be turning our attention starting today to 1 Thessalonians. And this is a book uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Thessalonica, which was in the region of Macedonia. And we will see that this church in many ways was a faithful church. They have a good relationship with the Apostle Paul. 
they're exemplary in many ways. There are certainly some things that Paul is going to address in an effort to correct some things and guide them, but much of the tone in this letter is, is one of thankfulness and encouragement, and really it's a kind of the attitude of you're doing well, but let's, let's do even better. You guys can do even better than what you're doing now. Keep striving. And this is seen in the, in the letter. Paul never refers to himself as an apostle. He doesn't use that title. He doesn't defend the fact that he's an apostle, which we see quite often. And just having finished 1 Corinthians, you see that a fair bit there. He has to defend himself. And the fact that he doesn't have to do that in Thessalonians is an indication that they have a good relationship and uh, that things are, are good in the church. They don't have an issue with Paul or his teaching. So we see in many ways a faithful church. And so this is a good opportunity for us as we open this book uh, to see, to look in on and see what a faithful church looks like and see what it is that we as a church are called to be and called to do. And so this uh, series as we go through 1 Thessalonians is simply called A Faithful Church. So we're looking at a faithful church. We're looking at what Paul uh, is pointing to as the marks of a faithful church. And hopefully it's our desire that we would be a faithful Church, a church that's faithful to the Lord and to His Word. So, for the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, there's not much by way of commands from Paul. Uh, so, he's not, not issuing commands to the Thessalonians. But we're, we're going to basically be looking in on their interactions and their relationship and a little bit of their history between the Apostle and his companions and, uh, and the church in Thessalonica. And we're going to see there's lots there for us to learn just as we look in on their situation. Lots to learn, lots to apply. And then in the last couple of chapters, there's more by way of direct um, exhortation that Paul gives to the church um, and by extension to us. So, of course, in many ways, the entire Bible is about showing us how to be a faithful church, faithful Christians in a faithful church. Uh, We find instruction all over the Bible. This is not simply unique to 1 Thessalonians. But there uh, is some unique insight into the relationship between this apostle, Paul, and this beloved church. His love for them and their love for him is going to come out uh, beautifully in this book and and be an example for us. And so as we look at the commendable aspects of the Thessalonians and the corrections as well that Paul gives them, we will find much to be encouraged about, much to emulate, and much to strive for as individual Christians, but also then together as a church. And so hopefully, again, we can together understand what Scripture is pointing us toward, and we can be on the same page, working together, and pulling each other along in the same direction, even as we are very different people with our different gifts. So let's just begin by reading 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to start with just, uh, we'll read chapter 1, and then we'll focus in on the first five verses for the rest of our time. So let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this, this afternoon, as we look at the first five verses, we just want to begin this series by asking the question, what is a faithful church? And so what we're going to look at uh, is not an exhaustive answer to that question. Um, there's a lot more things we could say that would define a faithful church, but it's not less than what we're going to look at today. It includes what we will be looking at. And in a lot of ways, in these first ten verses that we just read, um, Paul is giving really kind of an overview of some of the other topics and issues that are going to come up through the rest of the book as well, which we'll see as we continue to move forward. So we're looking at uh, today, what is a faithful church? But even before we dive into that, just a few introductory remarks about the Thessalonians and about this uh, letter from from verse 1. Notice it's written from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is a common way of writing a letter. We sign our names at the end of our letters and emails today. They sign theirs up front, which I guess makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, So when we see the words throughout this letter, um, we did this, uh, when it says us or our, um, that's Paul, uh, but also with him we know Sylvanus and Timothy. This book, we, I, I would say, I would argue, is primarily written by Paul. Um, I, I think it's safe to say that because he identifies himself specifically in a couple of places, most notably uh, chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, I, Paul. Um, so I think this is primarily from the apostle, but also these other two men. Silvanus is another way of saying Silas. And uh, we know from Acts 17, which was read at the start of the service, that Silas was with Paul when they went through Thessalonica and preached the gospel. So Silas was, was there with Paul, preaching and teaching and helping him. So that's who, who Silas is. Um, and, and, and Silas was with Paul on, on uh, many of these occasions. He joined him on his missionary journeys when Paul and Barnabas uh, split ways. Uh, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. Um, and we know he often functioned as Paul's right-hand man, uh, so to speak. And in 1 Thessalonians, in, in chapter 3, verse 2, we see that, um, that at one point when Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians and how they were, he sent Timothy to find out about them. And so he sent them, he was worried about them, and then Timothy went, met with them, came back to Paul, and gave a good report of, of how things were going there, an encouraging report. So we know that these three men, Paul, uh, Silas, Tim- Timothy, they've all been um, involved in the church uh, from the very beginning and have all been there teaching and, uh, and, and being um, leaders, really, I guess, uh, amongst the church and have had a relationship from the very start with them. So that's who these men are that are behind this letter. Additionally, there's a good chance Timothy was the one who delivered this letter to the Thessalonians 
In which case, if he's written, if his name is written as part of the one sending it, then he would also have authority when he's there to interpret it. If there was any questions about what it meant, um, it's from him as well, and he, could, he can easily interpret it for them. So there's that as well. So this letter uh, is to the church of the Thessalonians, it says, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, this is the church that formed in Acts 17 as the result of the preaching of the gospel by Paul and his companions. And we will talk more about the context of Thessalonica and the culture around the city uh, as, as, the, uh, as the series progresses, as it becomes uh, helpful to understanding uh, what we're reading and studying. Uh, so we'll talk more about Thessalonica as we go. Uh, the word for church, it says to the church of the Thessalonians in God. Um, this is a common Greek word in that day that meant assembly. And it had different, it was used in different ways, but it often referred to official civic assemblies. Uh, so, uh, for example, it was used to refer to governing assemblies in some Greek cities. We even see this in Acts 19.39 in Ephesus. This uh, court assembles. Uh, it's an assembly, and that's the same word for ch- uh, church that we see here. Uh, it was a common word, but in the New Testament, when it's used to describe uh, Christian gatherings, it has particular meanings. It's used to refer either to all of the Christians in a city, the Christians that are gathered in a particular house for worship, particular meeting place, or in some cases uh, to all believers worldwide. And so in order to dis- distinguish this assembly, this church from other assemblies out there in this day, um, he adds this, it's the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't elaborate on that exactly here, uh, but it's likely a reference to the fact that the church, uh, again, not merely a civic or social gathering, um, but is in fact, um, he's talking about the church made up of people who've been brought out of the domain of darkness and have been brought into union uh, with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we even sang about that uh, eternal union um, in the last song there. So, so, there, there, so then, then from there, Paul gives his customary greeting, grace to you and peace. And uh, I think it's, this is more than just a mere well-wish, um, that they would feel nice inside, peace. Uh, it is a really, I think, an expression of and reminder of the essence of the gospel that grace, the grace of God leads to peace with God. So it would be like saying, may the grace of God and peace with God be upon you. That's what his desire is for them. That's the greeting. So from there, now Paul goes into uh, really an extended greeting and thanksgiving in the rest of chapter 1, and and that's where I want to spend the rest of our time on verses 2 through the middle of verse 5 where we begin to look at a faithful church and asking the question, what is it? So first of all, a faithful church, first thing is worthy of prayers and thanksgiving. Worthy of of prayers of thanksgiving. So verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So in, in in the Greek, the first five verses are all one sentence. Just one big, long sentence. 
And the main uh, verb in the sentence is right at the beginning there where he says, we give thanks to God. We give thanks. That's the main verb. And the rest of the sentence, the rest of those verses are really expressing uh, how, showing how and why it is that these men give thanks. And so this expression of thankfulness, it's not just a throwaway. It's not just a formality that he, sa- that he has to say. Uh, that's just a uh, customary part of the way they wrote letters then. It's much more than that. And as we'll see, the church has many things worthy of being thankful for. They are indeed faithful in so many things. In fact, um, one, one commentator I've read uh, argues that um, really the, the whole letter, one of the main themes of the entire letter is thank, thankfulness, is, is Paul's thanksgiving for this church. And that af- after this uh, expression of how he, you know, after saying he gives thanks for them, that the rest of the chapters 2 and 3 really are uh, just Paul explaining why he's so thankful for them. So it's a, it's a significant part of this, this letter. And so Paul and his companions, they're, they're thankful, and, and it explains how it is they express those thanks. It says, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So this is how it is that these men are, are giving thanks. Uh, notice it says it's constant. It's constantly giving thanks. The idea of, of praying without ceasing, it's... Uh, means regularly and often. They're continually doing this. It might even mean that the three men uh, would, would gather regularly together to pray for this church and probably the others. When it says we give thanks constantly. Regardless, uh, we know that they're, whether they were all, did it all together or if they did it separately, uh, we know that all of them were praying constantly and constantly giving thanks for this church. And so I don't want us to miss the fact that a, a good church, a faithful church, is worthy of thanksgiving expressed through continual prayer. And I would add to this that it's not only a really good and perfect church that is worthy of giving God thanks for, uh, this church is not perfect, as we will see. There are, are issues to be addressed. Um, but also, having just finished 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul begins that with an expression of thanksgiving for that church. And, I mean, they had issues. They had some serious issues. And yet, Paul still was able to find reasons to be thankful to the Lord for the church. And so how much more, uh, you know, when you find a church that is, is functioning well... Um, is, is just worthy of thankfulness. Now, I, I would say that this church, Gospel of Grace, is faithful in many things. Certainly not perfect in, in everything by any stretch of the imagination, but faithful in many ways, and, and I, I believe striving to be faithful in all things and, and making that the goal. And as one who's new here, um, it's easy for me to say that uh, because I, I take no, can't take any credit for that. So um, I can commend you and encourage you with that. As, I, um, as we were preparing to come here and talking with people back in uh, Louisville about this place and about this church specifically, when I would explain this, this church to people uh, regularly, um, they, would, they would just... Uh, express their joy and their their happiness for us and for me to be able to come and be part of this kind of a church and to be able to pastor in this 
type of a place because this is a, a, a good church, a faithful church, and it's worth uh, being thankful for. And, um, and, and so, you know, even just as I'd explain it to others and they would respond with, uh, with, with such a joyful reaction on our behalf, I'd realize, yeah, they're right. This is good. This is, it's a good place to be. This is exciting. And the reality is, there are many churches where the word's not taught consistently and where people don't even want the word taught consistently. They don't really want to know what it says. And this is just a sad reality. I'm not picking on anyone. It's just a fact. Uh, lots of churches where the Bible's not the final authority for practices. It's whatever we've done in the past or it could be any other number of things. Uh, and I've, I've, I've known people, I've known many, several different people who moved away to different cities, different towns, and found work there, and so they moved for a job, and then who struggled to find a church. They could not find a church that was faithful to the Word, or trying necessarily even to be faithful to the Word. And as a result of that, life was very difficult, despite good jobs, uh, despite maybe even closeness to family, life was very hard because spiritually they were not in fellowship. They were not having their souls fed uh, by the word at church or in fellowship with people who believed the same things as them. And so it could be very, uh, very difficult. And so a good church, a faithful church, a church striving to be faithful, is worthy of thanking God for in prayer. And so I ask us, what, what are we, what are you thankful for? Does the church make your list? And it doesn't mean the church is, is perfect by any means, but does it make your list? What specific elements are you thankful for in the church? Uh, maybe it's care that someone's shown to you. Perhaps it's uh, the, the songs that get sung, whatever it might be. What are those things? It could be just the fellowship you have when you gather with people of like mind. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray for this church? How often? Do you express thanks to God in prayer for one another and for the work that he's doing in people around you? Or do you, when you pray for the church, just jump straight to the issues that you see and the problems, which are worthy of, uh, please pray for those, but, um, but we should start, as Paul does here, with expression of thanksgiving to God for a faithful church. It's a blessing to be part of a faithful church. Such a church is worthy of thankfulness expressed through constant prayer. Second, a faithful church is characterized by expressions of faith, hope, and love. So Paul expresses his thanksgiving through, uh, through his prayers. As we saying, they pray regularly in thankfulness. And now we see what it is about the Thessalonians that makes Paul thankful. He's going to list some of these things. So in verse 3 he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Jesus. So I, I believe it best to understand these uh, phrases as meaning... Uh, the work that proceeds from faith, work that comes from faith, labor that proceeds from love, and steadfastness that proceeds from hope in Christ, that comes from 
hope in Christ. So let's look at these one at a time. Work of faith. These would be good deeds that are done as a result of having faith in Jesus Christ. So this would be, I think, what Paul expresses in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where uh, 2, 8 and 9, you know, uh, often we know those as, as being uh, great verses talking about how we are saved by grace uh, alone and it, by, saved by grace through faith. How this is a gift of God, is not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, in those good works. So work of faith would be the good deeds that the Thessalonians are doing that flows out of their faith in the Lord. Uh, Labor of love, again, I think this is labor or work that is driven by their love of God and their love of neighbor. So in, in chapter 4, 9, we're told, uh, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, so he's, he's still talking to Thessalonians, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And, and he goes on to say this is, this is known. This love, their love is known around Macedonia and Achaia. And so this church is a church that we, we see they love God. This is known. They love one another as well. Paul commends them for this. So these, this labor of love, I think, is basically anything done out of love for the Lord or for uh, your fellow believers that you're doing to, um, to help as an act of love. So I think it's, it's wherever, whenever we might have opportunity to express this love. Um, and so we, we know also from 1 Thessalonians, these believers were an example to other Christians throughout Macedonia and Achaia, chapter 4, even chapter 1 here, if, if we keep reading, which we, we read earlier, we'd see that they're an example to others. Um, as they took part in missionary journeys, we'll talk more about that another week, and likely also showing hospitality to other believers who passed through Thessalonica, that city was on a main trade route through Macedonia. There would have been a lot of traffic. It would have been, there's, it's not an accident that Paul was traveling uh, through Thessalonica and came to that city. It was on a main road. And it was also likely sh- uh, shown in the fact that they were giving money to the believers in Jerusalem. So you'll remember perhaps that Paul uh, took up a collection everywhere he went of, of money to uh, send back, to actually take back to Jerusalem, to the believers there, as there was a famine. And uh, he saw this as a way of the Gentile churches being able to love the uh, Jewish church in Jerusalem. And in, in 1 Corinthians 8, um, we see, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, uh, he, he, he mentions that collection to the Corinthians, and he talks about the churches in Macedonia uh, who've been giving to this. And of course, Thessalonica is one of the main cities, one of the most significant churches in Macedonia. Certainly, they would have been part of that as well. So there's all these ways, I think all these things together uh, are labor, part of their labor that comes from their love for God and their love for their neighbor. And then we have steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness, that could be perseverance, might be a word we're more familiar with that we use more. Um, but it's persevering in the face of suffering and persecution that comes from firm hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, confident that he is the only Savior 
that regardless of whatever this world might say to you or do to you or whatever might come your way, that confidence that your eternity is secured based on Christ's death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that he brings to those who repent and trust in him. So such hope leads to steadfastness and in difficulty. And this is what we were singing about in at least a couple of those songs, that our hope is fixed on Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to us, that even when things are difficult here, we will still sing praise to the Lord. That's an expression of steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And such perseverance was highly treasured and highly valued in the early church, which was regularly under trial and persecution. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we're going to see that uh, Paul was very concerned about the perseverance of the Thessalonian church. He was very concerned. We see in, uh, into the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, he was concerned that perhaps in his absence and after he left, which we read in Acts 17, they, were, they had to leave quickly because they were being persecuted. He was concerned that perhaps the church had become unfaithful and uh, had denied the Lord and even says he was concerned that perhaps their labor there had been in vain, meaning that they had dispersed and no longer are even trusting in the Lord. He was very concerned about their perseverance and we also see his great relief uh, in 3 verse 6 when Timothy comes back and gives him the good news that they've remained true to the Lord and they're steadfast in their hope of Jesus Christ, and he's clearly very relieved and very grateful uh, to the Lord for this church that is remaining faithful through their steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. It's in many ways this is opposite to what we see in a lot of uh, Christianity today where we're happy to, get, to, to see people walk in the door um, and, and, and we, we like to have those numbers, um, but this is a concern not just that somebody would express an interest in Jesus or even that someone would simply make a profession of faith, but a desire to see them continue to the very end um, and continue until the day they die or the Lord returns, um, remaining in their hope of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this book, we're going to see that for the, the Thessalonians, this was, they, they received, they, they were persecuted. They were the recipients of much persecution from their fellow countrymen. And in Acts 17, we just see Paul uh, and, his, and, and, and uh, Silas being persecuted by the Jews in Thessalonica. But as we'll see as we keep reading 1 Thessalonians, it, after they left, it continued to happen, even from uh, the other Greeks and Macedonians in Thessalonica. And so they, they knew what it was to face persecution and trial and testing. And imagine... You know, the apostle's gone, they can't pick up a phone, there's no Facebook, there's no texting, they're there with what he brought them and their Old Testament scriptures perhaps that they had, and well, which they would have had because there were some Jews in the church, and, that, and they were just clinging to this, clinging to that. And so they're showing steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love, these three words are, are all brought up here, all mentioned here. They're good words, they're good Christian words. Um, they can also become meaningless if we're not careful. And what we see here is that when faith, hope, and love are truly present, they result in actions. They result in certain outward displays. And so faithful Christians and, and therefore faithful churches are characterized by such expressions. So this is, I think, is similar to what 
uh, James talks about when he says that faith without deeds is dead. Right? It means that true saving faith is not just something we say, it's something that actually results and produces works. And we see that even in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where we're saved by grace, not a result of works, but we also see that we're saved to then do good works that the Lord has prepared in advance for us to do. So faith in God leads to works of faith, done in faith, love of God, love of our neighbors, as a result of love of God, manifests itself in labors of love, wherever we can, loving others, loving the Lord, and hope in the Lord Jesus results in, among other things, staying steadfast through persecution and trial. And so, it's not simply enough to say, oh, I have faith. James would ask, or James would say, show me that faith in the way your life is lived out by your deeds. I think someone, if someone truly has hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will reveal itself in remaining steadfast as well in that hope. And of course, this, we still will falter, and we need to be reminded to stirring each other up to these good deeds, these works of faith, labor of love. We need to encourage each other, point each other uh, through song, through encouragement, through exhortation, through Bible reading, uh, text message, phone call, whatever it is you use, uh, encouraging each other to lift our eyes to Christ and to be encouraged through difficulty and trial to keep our hope in steadfast love. These are means by which God accomplishes his purposes and, and means by which he preserves his people. And so I would encourage you, if you find yourself lacking good deeds or if you find yourself even lacking a desire to do good deeds, if you find yourself lacking love for God or love for your neighbor or love for your church family, or if you're feeling ready to just give up on Christianity altogether because life's too hard or because the pressures of the world are too intense, you don't want to feel the scorn of people around you, then I would encourage you to examine yourself to see if you are, in fact, in the faith, to see if you have saving faith as the Bible describes it. To see if you've ever had love for God and neighbor. And I would encourage you to examine what, what are you today placing your hope in? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you? Do you have faith that He is the only Savior who can pay the sufficient penalty for your sins and give you a sufficient righteousness that when you die and stand before the Lord, you will be ushered into heaven, into the new heavens and new earth, ultimately. Do you have faith in Christ for that? That on the day of judgment, His righteousness will be sufficient to cover you? And do you, therefore, if you possess that, love God as a result of this? Do you love your fellow believer, recognizing they too are those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation? Do you love your neighbors outside of these walls? Do you desire to see unsaved people come to faith in Christ? Where is your hope today? Do you see through this world that to the day that is coming, a day when you will stand before the Lord and called, be called to account, and to a day when eternity 
And a new heavens and new earth awaits for those who are in Christ, or an eternity spent suffering the wrath of God, which Paul even says there in verse 10, that one of what Jesus does is deliver us from the wrath of God. So we live in this world that is constantly drawing our attention to other things. And they're things that are not eternal and really not that significant ultimately, but we can, we can put our hope in those things. And it's, it can become idolatrous very quickly. And so I'm asking, do, what, what is your hope? Do you see through those things to that day when you will stand before the Lord? Do you see Christ is therefore your only hope and therefore worthy of losing everything for in this life? It's this hope that produces perseverance. And if you've not trusted Christ, if you've not ever repented of your sin, realizing that the sins you've committed are offenses against the Creator whom you will give an account to, then the call for you is to repent, to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus Christ, and to place your hope, your eternity, in His hands. And for those who of us who are believers, if you've wavered in any of these things, in your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, if you're wavering on these things, we're also called to repent. To repent, to resume fixing our eyes on Christ and laboring onward in love and in faith. So these are things that characterize a faithful church and may we strive for these things today and May we seek out our neighbors and find ways of loving one another. And so just a few practical ways that that can be done. Writing a card, having coffee together, praying for them, even letting someone know you're praying for them can be an incredible encouragement. Ask somebody what you might pray for for them and then make sure you do it. Uh, Reach out to friends or people you haven't seen in a while, perhaps who've come to this church, whether it's once or regularly or whatever, reach out to them. Ask how they're doing. Encourage each other towards hope in Christ. Remind one another. We must remind each other. If you see a brother who is in sin, approach that person gently, respectfully, lovingly, assuming the best of them, helping them, helping one another. We need one another to head in the same direction, to remain steadfast in our hope of Jesus Christ. So I know all these things happen here, um, but we are called to do this more and more. So renew, renew your commitment to that and find ways of, of demonstrating love for one another and doing these works of faith. Thirdly, a faithful church is chosen by God and bears His marks. A faithful church is chosen by God and bears His marks. Verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. There's a lot in this statement here. Um, first, even the word brothers, the fact that Paul would use this word brothers, gives insight to how uh, early Christians viewed their relationship to one another and how they viewed themselves as a church. Um, it's, it very much is a, a family. That's, that's a big part of, of how they viewed themselves as a family. That's why they, this word brothers. And you might notice your, your, your Bible might have a footnote um, that says it could be brothers and sisters. And so it's kind of like the way the word man or mankind can be used to 
discuss the human race, which includes males and females, it's similar in this case with this word. So it's not that he's just addressing the men, he's addressing all of the church, uh, men and women. So the church viewed itself as a family. So as we know, God is the Father, God the Father, and we have brothers and sisters, and even Jesus a couple of times in the Bible is, is talked of as the believer's older brother, as our, as our brother. That's how even Christ himself is, is referred to. Romans 8, 29, Hebrews 2, 11 are two places where that's the case. So this is a, a, the family of God. Also notice this family of God is loved by God. It says, it says, beloved by God. I mean, this is remarkable. If, 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 uh, if you get past the modern-day cliche, um, God loves you, uh, Jesus loves you, that's just kind of thrown around. Um, and, but if you, get, if you just sort of, uh, but if you stop and you get underneath that for a moment and you think about that concept for a second, even last week we talked about the God Remember who this God is, the one who spoke it all into being, spoke everything into existence. Um, This God who is infinitely perfect and holy, who moreover we've offended as his creatures in our sins that are against his perfection, ultimately, and his laws. And yet, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ and have faith in him, he loves you. If you're part of his church his global church, if you're somebody he's redeemed and called out of darkness into life, you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, yes, I, I, I know that I'm sinful and I need Jesus and I need him alone and he's my only hope. You're loved by God the Father, the one who spoke everything into being. And I would suggest that's a fairly remarkable uh, thing and encouraging, hopefully. Next, Paul says that the Thessalonians are chosen by God. This is, again, um, the doctrine of election. God is the one, ultimately, who saves sinners and who chooses his people. Of course, this doctrine raises questions, um, and we're not going to address them all uh, right now. We're going to stay focused on on the things that Paul is getting at. I'm happy to talk about any other questions that come from it any other time. But, uh, but one of the questions this raises is how we might know, how somebody might know if they are chosen by God. That, I think, is a question that comes up fairly often. Um, and, and Paul's going to explain that here uh, in verse 5. So here's how he knows that they've been chosen by God. He says, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So there are four ways here that Paul says the gospel came to them. The first one is in word. That is, it came in preaching. It came through speaking this word to the Thessalonians. And of course, the gospel has to come in word. Of course, that word can be written down. uh, But it has to come in word because it's an announcement. It's an announcement of Jesus Christ having died on the cross, been buried... And then having been raised from the dead, having done that uh, for sinners, on behalf of sinners, taking the punishment for sinners upon himself, rising from the dead, and now as a result of that historic event, that thing that actually happened, uh, 
the forgiveness of sins, repentance and the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in Jesus' name. Meaning, if you repent and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven. And you can be forgiven. So this is an announcement. Jesus died. He rose. He reigns. Repent. Believe the gospel. And so it has to come in word. It is not something that we can act. It is not something we can simply show and do in our actions. We can't, none of us can die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend to the Father's right hand and intercede for people. We can't do that. This is something we must communicate verbally. So the gospel did come in word. Um, at the same time, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul makes it clear that uh, words can be used in a fancy manner, uh, and, uh, and they can be used with impressive rhetoric uh, that impresses and might convince somebody uh, in their mind of a certain thing. We've all experienced that, uh, where someone makes a case, and you think, wow, that's a really good argument. That was really well done, and then you consider it later and realize where maybe they went wrong, or maybe you don't realize where they went wrong. Um, but similarly here, the gospel came in word to the Thessalonians, but also uh, in three other ways that reveal the fact that God was the one at work in this preaching and in this, uh, this gospel that came by word. So these other three things, the gospel came, he says, not only in word, so it did come in word, but also he says in power, the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction. So these are are, are separate but related uh, things, separate and related items uh, that together show evidence of God's choosing. And so uh, the first thing in power, coming in power. Paul's not explicit here about what power he's talking about, what exactly he means when he says the gospel came in power. Um, but I think there's um, a few things we can say about it. First, sometimes Paul talks about in, in the New Testament and, and elsewhere as well, it's also in Hebrews, about how, well, well, when Paul talks about it, he talks about the signs of a true apostle were performed through him, uh, and namely, he's talking about signs and wonders, miracles. Um, Hebrews 2.4, it's not Paul, but Hebrews 2.4 talks about how God bore witness. As the gospel was being proclaimed, God bore witness by signs and wonders. Uh, Romans 15.19 also talks about how when the Gentiles uh, were coming to faith, he's explaining the Gentiles coming to faith, he talks about how the power of signs and wonders were part of what convinced the Gentiles of Paul's preaching. And so I, I think that this, uh, this gift, these miracles, these signs, these wonders that Paul talks about sometimes were an apostolic gift that often accompanied their preaching. Not every time they go and preach the gospel in the Bible do we read about, um, about signs and wonders being performed. Um, they're actually they're, they're not insignificant, but, uh, but it's not the most important aspect even. But they did, nevertheless, bear witness to the truth of the message of the apostles. So sometimes Paul talks about the power that accompanied preaching as being signs and wonders performed by the apostle. Uh, but Paul also talks about the power of God unto salvation for those who believe being the gospel. So he also talks about the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1 talks about that. So that's another way he talks about power in the context of gospel preaching. And then third, uh, tied to this in, in Romans 15, 19, which also 
which talks about the power of signs and wonders. Uh, he also says, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, which I think is the Spirit bringing sinners to repentance and faith. And, and probably also the Spirit enabling Paul to, um, to perform miracles as well. And so in Acts 17, when, when Paul preaches in Thessalonica and the Thessalonians come to faith in Christ, we don't read about miracles happening, but it's possible that they did. Um, and so it's likely that Paul here, he could have in mind all of these things, as he says, in power. His point is that I didn't just come and talk to you and, and get, bring the gospel in word. It, the end res, what, what also came with it was displays of power. And the Thessalonians would know, as he writes to them, what that was referring to. Um, but it's, it's probably one, if not all three of these things together. So I, and so I would, I would also say that power, even here in, in 1 Thessalonians, in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, that power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction, I think those things are very tightly related. I think those are all connected uh, and, and he lists them out as three separate things. Um, but the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about power. He's the one who would enable the apostle to perform miracles, uh, the gifts of the Spirit. So uh, that would be enabling by the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit would be the one to, um, to open the eyes of dead sinners, to help them see the truth of the gospel message that's being uh, proclaimed. And so the last thing Paul mentions here is full conviction. So that would also be the work of the Spirit in bringing about full conviction in the hearers of the gospel. So again, what I think he's saying is that there are marks, signs, evidence that you are chosen by God himself. What are those things? How do I know? How does Paul know that they are uh, truly uh, chosen by God? He says, because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. The Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so I, I do think that signs and wonders, at least as a gift, were an apostolic gifting. So I think we still see miracles happen today. Um, but such a gifting, I would argue, has ceased with the gift of apostleship. And so we, we could talk about more about that another time, happy to. Um, but obviously, these miracles that Paul performed when he preached the gospel were evidence that God was at work. That's, that's clearly what he has said. And if that's not exactly what he means here, he says it elsewhere. Reason to suggest he means it here. Such signs and wonders have never been normative in the church. Um, but that, that doesn't mean there's no evidence today of power in the local church, who are filled uh, with God's Spirit. I think we downplay, we tend to downplay the miraculous nature of conversion, for example, that a dead sinner is made alive, that someone who despises God, who would despise his laws, who would despise that there is a being out there that would tell me what to do or what is right and wrong, Someone with such anger towards God, such rebellion against him, would at one time reverse that course and lay themselves down, repent of their sin, and place faith in Jesus Christ. And many of us were those people. And that is nothing short of the power of God at work when that happens. 
When there is repentance like that, that is the power of God on display, the power of Holy Spirit. When that person becomes fully convinced that their only hope is Jesus Christ, that's power. That's evidence that God is amongst such a people. That such people are chosen by the Lord. That there would be full conviction of the gospel amongst people who live in a culture where almost everything pulls us away from that, that says that's garbage, that's not true, that could never be true, that celebrates all the sins, or seemingly all the sins that God calls detestable are celebrated in culture around us, and yet people come out of that convinced, at risk of harm to themselves, at risk of loss of job, in order to say the scriptures are true, the gospel is true, I stand there. That's, that's the power of God at work. That people who suffer tremendously, physically, emotionally, however else one might suffer, would still at the end of the day say, no, though some might tell me to curse God and die, as Job's wife told him, I will still bless the name of the Lord. That's the power of God at work. That's not something that's just secondary. And that's part of the shame of those that try to trumpet the necessity of of signs and wonders is it completely downplays where God truly is miraculously at work in people. I think we downplay the miraculousness of a man or woman who dies themselves enough to go and serve another person joyfully at their own expense. That's miraculous. I think we downplay or might not realize perhaps the power of God that's on display when someone gives money sacrificially and cheerfully. When someone sits down and takes their budget and and carves out a a place for giving to the local church, to missions, to advancing the gospel in other places, and, and carefully works that into their budget in order to have enough to make sure they give and still have enough to live, and it's tight, but they do it because they want people to know the gospel. That's that that is evidence of a repentant heart, of faith in God, that they've been chosen by God. I mean, money that people earn. That's not something that people want to sacrificially give away normally. God's power further on display when people walk in victory over lifelong sins, putting off old ways, putting on new ways, no longer being quick to anger, but being patient with one another. No longer being drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. No longer being lustful over women, but viewing them as fellow image bearers who are either sisters in Christ or women who need to hear the gospel in need of salvation. These things are displays of the Spirit's power and give evidence of one's election, being chosen by God. And this choosing is rooted in God's love. He says there, Uh, He calls them beloved by God. Uh, Ephesians 1.4 even tells us that this choosing, this love of God, um, happened before the foundations of the world. So before that God who spoke it all into being even did that, it says that He loved His people. And so this, this... idea, this doctrine of, of election that God would choose people, it's to be a comfort to us. If you believe the gospel and, and, and there's f- the fruit of that in your life, 
even imperfectly. But there's, the fruit is there. Uh, find joy and humility in knowing that God first loved you and determined to save you and keep you and bring you home. We sang about that as well. And, and further, as a church, we can find comfort knowing that it's God who builds His church. That He has people out there that He has chosen to save. So as we go out with the gospel, we can have confidence that yes, some will despise us, but others will believe. Because God is the one who saves. Truly. If you wrestle with knowing uh, whether God chose you, um, just two quick questions to ask yourself. Three, maybe three. Do you believe the gospel? Second question, does your life bear fruit? You might say, yes, I I believe the gospel. Yes, I, I think my life bears fruit, but it's a struggle. I'm not entirely sure. Then I would ask you the third question, when you struggle, what is your hope? When you know you've blown it again, where do you turn? What is your hope in that moment? And if it is that Jesus is your only hope for forgiveness and salvation, if you know that I clearly I need him above all else, then that sounds like a believer to me. Many people hate the doctrine of election. They despise it um, because... Uh, it can cause struggle, I mean, let's be honest, with whether or not we, um, we're a believer or not. When we sin, we can ask ourselves, would, a, would someone chosen, would a believer really do this? And, and what does that mean for my election? We can ask these questions. Um, but this is not a reason to throw away uh, a doctrine that's clearly laid out in Scripture. We must then wrestle through these things. And keep wrestling and to ask for help and to get on our knees in prayer and to work through it and to be repenting of our sin and keep looking to Jesus Christ. And know that if you do struggle with that, you're not alone. I don't know that I've ever met a Christian who has not struggled with that, who's not been in a situation where they've done something again and they just think, I, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if, if I could possibly be saved. This is so, I've done this again. I, I don't, I've not talked with somebody that has never, act, never experienced that. It happens. But again, I would just ask you, where do you go in that moment? And I would encourage you, back on your knees, to confess that sin and trust in Christ again. Reach out for help. Be praying for victory. And people here in your church would want to help you and walk with you through those things. We ought to. Labor of love. We are in need of knowing what we ought to look like and be like as a church. A faithful church is worthy of giving God thanks. It's characterized by expressions of faith, hope, and love. And a faithful church is chosen by God and bears his marks, namely power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. God, I give you thanks for this church. Lord, we are 
we all know how far short we fall of your righteous standards as individuals and certainly as a church. And yet, Lord, we don't hide behind that sin. We confess it to you. And God, we want to be faithful people. People who evidence faith, who labor out of our love for you and love for our fellow believers and our concern and love for the lost. Forgive us where we've fallen short in these things. Forgive us where we've become selfish or idolatrous and caring about other things more than you and your work and one another. God, make us steadfast in our hope of Jesus Christ. May our eyes ever be on Christ. God, thank you for this time we can gather and worship and sing and be reminded of these things. We need this reminder. May we be people that gather when we get those opportun- any opportunity we can to encourage one another, to be built up. May we be a place where we are edified. May we be quick to repent of our sin. May we be quick to forgive one another. May we truly care about each other and be filled with love and godly concern for each other. May we want more than anything for our, the people sitting around us to be standing together in the new heavens and new earth, to, to remain steadfast to the end. May we encourage each other in this. May we see through all the distractions that will come our way, even as soon as we finish here, and even that are happening now. May we see through distractions and may we see Christ as glorious. May we love our Savior. May we desire to know Him more and take our, every opportunity we can to open His Word and read and learn about Him. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for your Spirit that empowers your people, that opens eyes to see the truth of the Gospel. I pray that if there's any here who don't believe or have not repented and trusted in Christ, that this would be the day and moment where you draw them to yourself. Thank you for your kindness and your grace in this. Encourage us as we reach out to other people, knowing that you draw people and save people. I pray that that would help us to have courage to open our mouths and to share the gospel. And Lord, we desire to see the gospel go forward in word empower the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. We pray that you do these things that you might be made much of here in our city and in the cities around us, in our country, and all over the world. Lord, we, um, I pray that you'd encourage your people. Uh, give us strength, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.